0: Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter five, being verses seven through 12. Kids in the Bibles that we have given you are uh, on the back table that can be found on page 1013. 1013. read the passage. James 5 verse 7. This is God's word. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your let yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Have two basic points today. The first one is wait patiently. We see that in verses seven through nine. And then, lastly, we see be steadfast. Be steadfast in verses ten through twelve. The um, in our first here we see uh, in our first point we see James encourage us to wait patiently. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. Why? Because the Lord is coming says, the Lord is coming there in verse seven, and he also alludes to it again in verse nine. What's so interesting about this is he doesn't offer any other detail. He doesn't give us any explanation or description about how it's going to happen, or uh, any, he doesn't tell us anything about the Lord's coming. And I mean, if, if we have our timing right, and this letter is written very early on, it's written before any of Paul's letters, You'd think that he would go into more detail than this. You'd think he, he would kind of be first on the scene and so he would inform us, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he describe it? I think he doesn't describe it because Jesus has told us all we need to know in the, uh, in the gospels, in Jesus's teaching. He's, he's basically saying, Jesus told us this is the case, so be patient, wait patiently because the Lord is coming. Jesus is the source of information and he has sufficiently addressed it. One commentator looks at Matthew 24 and says, Look, even just in Matthew 24, he taught us that his coming would be preceded by signs. And then when it, when it happened, it would be as vivid, visible, and unmistakable as lightning which illuminates the sky. It will happen on a day which cannot be known in advance and it will bring about the separation or the taking away of the people of God. What more needs to be said? Jesus has said it. Jesus also said in John 14, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be also. Jesus has said he is coming again. We read in our our call to worship from Mark 13, and we don't know the day or the hour. No one does. But everything that was prophesied to happen before the end shall come has happened, We aren't waiting on another age. We are in the last days. We are in that final age. What else do we need? What do we need to hear? This is the big difference between the skeptic or the unbeliever and the believer or the truster of Christ. We not only believe in the existence of Jesus, but we believe in his word and we take him at his word True, this letter was written in the middle of the first century. And here we are almost 20 centuries later. And it hasn't happened. What does that change for you? I'm reminded of Apostle Peter writing on this topic in his second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 3 where he said, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He goes on to say, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter says scoffers will come in the last days, and they'll say, This is foolishness. What are you waiting on? He's not coming back. It's 2,000 years. He's not coming. This isn't real. First of all, the Lord rules over time. It's not a long time to him. As Peter says, it's a couple of days to him. He's not sleeping. He hasn't forgotten. It's not a weird, made-up origin story. God has spoken. He will come again. And the reason he hasn't come again is that you and others like you may not perish. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you sit there thinking that all of this is some joke, that it's been 2,000 years and he's not coming back, I'm safe. I'm pretty sure he's not coming back if he hasn't done it yet. He hasn't come back because he is patiently offering you an opportunity for repentance. He's offering you a chance today. And all, finally, when all who are called to the family of God are in the family of God, and all those who have yet to be born, who will have stories of faith and their trust and their reliance on God, who will testify to his goodness and righteousness and justice, all of those, when all of those come to him so that uh, so that God may be glorified through his creation, the end will come. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? If you do, then live like it. Does your life give evidence that you believe it? Think long and hard about that. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Do you believe, do you take Jesus at his word? He said, if it were not so, then that I'm going to prepare a place for you and will come again, would I have told you this? Jesus saying, do you think I'm a liar? If you can listen to this and think, okay, I not only believe in the Lord Jesus, but I believe On the Lord Jesus, meaning I am trusting in him independent upon him for my eternal existence, my eternal happiness, and my eternal justification. Then set your heart on his return. That's the second sub point we see in under here. Be patient, wait patiently because Jesus is returning. And secondly, wait patiently. So establish your hearts, establish your hearts on his return. Align your heart with what you believe. James started this letter by talking about the sin of double-mindedness. For the one who is like a wave tossed to and fro, that's driven and tossed by the wind. He's double-minded in all he does, unstable in all his ways. We can't have divided hearts on this. If you believe it, speak to your heart. Establish your heart. Sing songs to it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I was thinking th- uh, earlier when I was praying for Lindsay and thinking about Rock of Ages in this last stanza. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let me buoy my own self. Let me sing to myself true realities to help me to establish my heart on what is coming. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself the way that Paul preached to us in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your Christ is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Sing songs to your heart, preach to your heart. Get around people who will say and sing to your heart to draw our hearts away from the snares and traps and baubles and trinkets of this life to the real, tangible, everlasting, yet now invisible realities of the heavens that await us. This life is hard and we are waiting for something that we cannot see. And we can feel like nothing is happening and it's not real and our feelings begin to feel like facts. But facts must inform our feelings. And the fact is is that Jesus told us to take him at his word. He is coming again. And that that fact should drive and affect and correct and form any feelings that I have. Establish your hearts. The word here, establish, is the same word that we see in Luke nine fifty one, where it says, um, um, uh, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That set there, set his face toward Jerusalem, is the same word for establish your heart. Set your face heavenward. Establish your hearts towards Christ's return. Jesus knew what awaited him. He knew the time. He knew God's purpose in it. And so he set his face that direction. He established his heart in that way, and we also are called to set our hearts toward heaven. And so, with established hearts, be patient as you wait for his promises. We can be impatient, can't we? In every aspect of life, we can be impatient. Things aren't happening to our, stand, to our timing or to our standard, and so we want to make it happen. But we can't really bring about Christ's return. How do we deal with impatience in our lives? How do you deal with impatience in your life? I found in my own heart, and I fear I may have passed it on to my kids, is that my impatience is manifest in, in kind of an Eeyore attitude. You remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Every Eeyore was a downtrodden pessimist. Always on the dark side of things. Oh, Eeyore, I didn't notice you were here. It's, that's all right. No one ever does. Always pessimistic. I don't wanna be a pessimist. Sometimes I say pessimistic things, so I say them out loud in hopes that the other person would go, come on, you're nuts. That's crazy, come on, no. No, that's not the truth. Let's, let me speak the truth to you. That's nonsense. But other people may be doing the same things. And if they're pessimistic too, I begin to say things and they say things back to me. And all of a sudden, it's this downward spiral down the drain. And Lord willing, we'll talk next week about how we need others to speak truth to us and pray for us when trials and difficulties are so difficult that we can't even see the promises of God but in our everyday life, ours is the voice that we hear the most. Be patient, you know the truth. Yes, we can't see Jesus return, but we can hear of it in passages like this and in Jesus' words and in Paul's letters. This is a great advertisement for reading God's word and for memorizing scripture. When we encounter a situation like this uh, in this life or where you're discouraged or when you um, or when you're um, hopeless you can kind of rifle through the rolodex of scriptures in your mind and in that moment you can recall a scripture that will encourage you and remind you of something or at least you'll know what book it comes from and so then you can kind of go to that book and you may know the address i encourage you to read God's word out of the same Bible all the time, because, you know, I don't know where it is, but I know it's on this page and I know it's in the second column and it's up top. And so I encourage you to read with a pen or a highlighter. And so when you see verses that encourage you, or when you see, um, uh, examples or pictures of, of, uh, of steadfastness or patience, then you can underline those so you can come back to it. We also should be patient as we wait for our righteousness to be revealed. When we read scripture, we can be discouraged because we're constantly reminded of how we don't measure up to God's perfect standard. Or at least we should be reminded of that. I was talking with a brother earlier this week and and he said, I never hear a sermon on stewardship or money where I'm not convicted. And until I give my last widow's mite away, I'm always going to be dealing with that conviction. So that can be discouraging to us. And we go, God, I'm just, I'm falling short. We may think we're doing okay. And then we read something like we read a couple of weeks ago where we didn't even know it was a sin to think, oh, okay, well, I'm, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to go do this. Tomorrow I'm going to go do that. and, And... We don't even know that that's a sin. And so we can be discouraged when we read God's word because we're constantly being exposed. But God is working on our hearts. Again, on his timing, not on our timing. We may think God is impatient toward us, but he's not. He's not impatient toward you. He's working in your life. And it may not make sense why you keep struggling with the same sin over and over again. But God has his reasons. It's like, why am I still dealing with, why am I so slow in sanctification? I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 7, 22. I've always been amazed by this verse. The Lord will clear away these. He's talking to, uh, um, to Israel before they go into the promised land. And he's saying, okay, look, you're going to go in there and you're going to defeat all, all of uh, um, those who are opposed to me you're going to defeat all your enemies as you go in you're going to take their land and then the lord says to them the lord will clear away these nations before you little by little you may not take them make an end of them all at once lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you so he's like i'm thinking about all kinds of stuff here if you knock these people out too you're going to be overrun by wild beasts so God's got his reasons that we aren't even, can't even fathom. The Lord is doing his work in you. I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 5:23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is a gift the Lord has given us to point out evidences of grace to us that we cannot see ourselves. And this is vital in helping us be patient as we wait for our own righteousness to be revealed. So how do we be patient as we wait? We hear God's word. We repent when it reveals where our lives fall short. We turn and trust in Christ's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. And we use God's word and God's people to encourage our hearts as we patiently wait for that day when Jesus returns. James encourages us with the patience of the farmer in verse seven. The farmer can't do anything to bring that crop about. He can't get that shoot to break ground. He can't add a single kernel to the ear. He is dependent upon the Lord, but he's not unaware, however. He's been here before, he understands. He knows from past experience that the early rains come and soften the ground and soften the seed and then the shoot springs forth. He's encouraged now, but he knows that that's not the end. He doesn't just sit inside and wait for the crop to come in. No, he's tilling the soil around it. He's protecting it from scavengers and birds who want to steal it away. He's reading or weeding around it to make sure that it's not choked out by the competition of the weeds. He watches and he waits, but he waits actively. And then the late rains come. The late rains can be disheartening at first. They can be torrential and it looks like that. The Lord is wiping out everything he's already done and these plants just look beaded and all knocked down and it's discouraging. They've come so far and now they're just destroyed. All this work done has been done up till now for naught until a couple of days later. The heads begin to open, the blossoms begin to turn into fruit. What seemed like a certain end has brought about the very thing that the farmer hoped for. The same is true for us. And our righteousness, being revealed isn't separated from the hope of Christ's return. They are one and the same. First John 3, two and three. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure finally in this section james encourages us to be patient with others all those things that are true about you that we just thought about are also true of your brother and sister so be patient with them but as we wait on something to happen, a peculiar, a peculiar thing happens in our relationships, or at least they do in mine. I don't know about y'all, but if we're having people over, or we're waiting on something, to, some somebody to get there, all of a sudden things can suddenly get tense in our house as we're waiting. We busy ourselves with things, and we place expectations on others, and we go, oh. We do this and you ought to do this and all of a sudden I'm keeping score for what I'm doing and you're not doing enough. You ought to be the one doing this. I've done all this and we're we're kind of rifling through uh, the list of of, uh, achievements and and all of a sudden uh, impatience sets in and it causes strife amongst one another. If we're under threat or under crisis, we can snap at each other, can't we? We begin to think I'm pulling my weight. Things can get tense with loved ones in crisis, and in a moment's notice, there's no warning about it. It just happens. I walk our dogs early in the morning when no one else is out because my dogs are not good citizens, and and um, um, I don't want to deal with other dogs and drama. Um, and so um, I take them out early in the morning, and if I see other dogs or another person, I go in the other direction because I just don't want to deal with it. And My dog's names are Buzz and Woody, and Buzz will start barking, and and Woody will bark too when he sees him. And all of a sudden, when another dog comes and that dog barks, all of a sudden, Woody will turn and look at Buzz, and he'll just jump on top of Buzz and start barking at Buzz. And Woody's figured out, I don't have to beat this dog, I just gotta beat Buzz. And so, I just gotta be tougher than him. And so, he just turns on him. And the same thing can happen to us when we're under threat, we can turn on one another. It doesn't make any sense. Buzz is like, why are you attacking me? I'm not the enemy. But there are times in life when other people, even in our own church, even people in your own family, even purple in your own house, even people in your own bed, can annoy you. Then there be real issues that annoy you. But don't grumble. James isn't telling us to ignore them. He's telling us to be patient and to act accordingly in light of Jesus's return. And verse 9 reminds us of an important fact that Jesus is not only coming as our Lord, but he is also our judge. And the Lord found great fault with Israel because they grumbled against God and grumbled against one another. Grumbling is complaining. As we have said, loved ones can do things that annoy us, but what will we do with those things? We must consider them in light of God's return. Is it an annoyance that isn't a sin? If it isn't a sin, don't grumble. Don't try to make it, don't sin because you're annoyed by them and just start talking about it amongst other people. Overlook it, be patient. Being weird isn't a sin. Is it a sin that they're working on, that they're aware of? If so, then be patient with them and offer encouragement, but don't go grumbling to other people. That doesn't do any good. We saw that in verse, in 411, A couple of weeks ago don't speak evil against one another brothers the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law hey your judge is at the door you don't want to be caught being unforgiving of your brother is it a sin that they don't have any inkling about or they have no regard or concern for if so then their judge is at the door Don't talk to anybody else about it. Talk to them about it. He's coming soon. Plead with them. Speak to them about their sin. Remind them of the judgment that is coming and call them to repentance. It doesn't do them any good if you just gossip to others about their sin. They need to hear it. Plead with them to turn and to escape the judgment that is to come. You want Christ to find you on the final day doing those things which leads to our second point. Our first point was wait patiently. And our second point in verses 10 through 12 is suffer steadfastly, suffer steadfastly. Suffer steadfastly first as you address sin and identify with Christ. When you live in light of Christ's return, your priorities are not going to match up with those of the world. Your sensitivities toward worldly things or crass things will cause them discomfort. It will convict them of their own worldliness and their hard-heartedness. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. So they don't respond to that conviction. Instead, they recoil at that conviction. So they will mock the one, ultimately, that brings it to their attention. They will seek to discount or discredit or dismiss the godly person eventually if you're consistent and it happens enough you will be opposed for this because you're calling out sin in their life and they don't like that jesus told us that this would be so in john 15 he said if the world hates you know it hated me first if you were if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you're not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Paul says that we're the aroma of death to the one who's perishing. And so as we're patient and not being too stressed out about the things of this world, but we're setting our heart on things above, we're trying to be mindful of that, that produces an aroma. And in the one who's perishing, that aroma is death. And so because you live for Christ, the world is opposed to you and you will suffer for it. James holds up for us this picture of the prophets. We would think the prophets were popular people. They were popular, but oftentimes they were popularly hated. Why were they hated? Because they spoke the word of God. Importantly, they often spoke the word of God to people who thought that they were the people of God. But why did God use the prophets? Because, the people weren't speaking God's word to themselves or to one another and they weren't hearing it. They weren't believing it. They weren't trusting on it. They weren't heeding the message of repentance and faith. And so mindful of the coming judgment, the prophets endeavored to speak nothing but the word of God to the people. And God was miraculously with them and it was an incredible privilege. But they suffered greatly for it. CEO Mitten notes, faithfulness to God's command so far from giving them immunity from suffering actually involved them in it. Their privilege and their trials went hand in hand. Alec Matera points out Jeremiah who was hunted down by the men of his hometown specifically because they wanted to stop him from speaking in the name of the Lord. And think of Daniel. If Daniel hadn't been deported to Babylon, we would have never heard of him nor benefited from his ministry. Hosea's painful marriage to the prostitute was in itself the Lord's word and to him and through him to us. I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 when we think about the prophets, the privileged The people, the loved of God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Yeah, and you know what? They were dearly and uniquely loved by God. Privileged by God. James tells us in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. These men were blessed. They remained steadfast because they were convinced their hearts were established. They were set towards the Lord. Even with the limited knowledge that they had in comparison to us, they heard God's word, they responded to it and resolved to speak it. We would never look at the prophets ever and think, oh man, they're hated by God. No, they were dearly loved and strengthened by God. And so were you. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. That's Second Chronicles sixteen nine. Suffer steadfastly as you address sin and identify with Christ. Lastly, suffer steadfastly as you suffer in a broken world. We're all aware that just because we're King's kids, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer in this world. That doesn't mean that we won't have tough marriages. That doesn't mean we won't have chronic illnesses. That doesn't mean that we won't have untimely deaths. That doesn't mean that we won't struggle with besetting sins. That doesn't mean that we won't struggle financially. That doesn't mean that we won't suffer unimaginable hardship. That doesn't mean that we won't deal with loneliness. But we can be led to, the, to think by those inside and outside the church that Christianity is the key. The key to unlock the ease of life. The way to make all your dreams come true. Maybe you have the coffee mug with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. Behold, I have the, the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. I don't see any, any coffee mugs with twenty nine ten on it. Where the verse before, Jeremiah, tell, uh, Jeremiah tells them that they're going to Babylon for 70 years because of their disobedience. We suffer in this world because this is a consequence of sin. Yes, it's a sin that has been paid for, but that doesn't mean that there aren't earthly consequences to our sin. Death and futility and selfishness and greed and pride and lust and hatred and bigotry and confusion and natural disasters and trials and traumas and countless other horrible things entered the world on that first fateful, fateful day and we still, still deal with it, and we can't make any sense of it. But that doesn't mean that God has forgotten us or that he's on leave. James offers us the example of Job, of whom we read in our Old Testament reading. Job suffered unbelievable loss as we read. So God must have been displeased with Job to allow him all that, all that stuff to happen to him, right? Quite the contrary, twice in what we read, the Lord refers to Job as my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. But why did God allow Satan to do to him what he did then? For God's glory, to show, that the, all sur- to show the all surpassing worth of God to show that those whose hearts truly belong to the Lord, you can rip everything away from them and they will still find the treasures of heaven better than all of it. But you may think, how cruel, how would he, why would he do that to a life just to show his glory? Who gave him that life? The Lord gave it to him. What's the purpose of that life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Job gave testimony to that very fact. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. As I read those verses along with y'all this morning, I was amazed at the amazing great grace and, and abundant provision that the Lord had given Job. And I'd never really focused on the abundant provision before. I'd always focused on the abundant loss but you can't have one without the other. And Job holds both of them in his hand and he goes, yeah, I've had it all and I've lost it all, but may the name of the Lord be praised. He had established his heart, set it heavenward. This is what steadfastness looks like. Was Job perfect? Absolutely not, hardly. He complained bitterly of God's treatment of him later on. He was self-righteous and he demanded answers from the Lord but he never abandoned his faith. He was confused by what had happened. He didn't understand God's purposes. But we, in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. We have the whole story of the book of Job. We've seen what happened in the heavens. We can see how God's glory is on display in suffering, even horrific suffering. We can see that God never left. And we can see that God, even though silent, is still mindful of his people and he hears them. We can be steadfast because we know that God's eye is upon us. Now, at the end of Job, Job gets more sons and daughters and livestock and servants. But that's not the point of the book. Sometimes God will restore to us what's been lost. But not always. But it doesn't really have any bearing on God's goodness toward us. What Job says at the end of Job in 42.5 is, I had heard you, of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Which is an important connection to what we thought about earlier in 1 John 3.2. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here... In Job 42 5, Job, uh, uh, Job says that through suffering he was able to learn more of God and see more of who he was, know him better than he had before. And what's Job's response by seeing him that way? Is repenting in dust and ashes. Friend, if you're not a believer, we take God at his word. We hear word. This is why we preach the word. Because when we hear the word preached, we learn more of who God is and we see more of who we are. And in that instant, we realize that we have a problem. Jesus Christ came to live perfectly the way you were created to live but didn't. And he died the death that your sin deserves. But he was raised three days later as proof that he is who he was said he was. And also proof that he is going to come again. And he ascended to heaven and he will come again. And this time when he comes, he will find all those trusting in Christ and his righteousness and he will gather them to himself. He's prepared a place for us. He just told us that. But those who are found trusting in their own righteousness or not believing that he'll return, not believing on the word. They will suffer eternal loss. When Job repented, when Job had been dressed down by the Lord and he saw him for who he was and realized that he had sinned, realized that his heart was prideful, he repented and the Lord didn't punish him. The Lord loved him and he led him to repentance. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, verse 11. We uniquely learn of God's compassion and mercy in our suffering. So be steadfast in suffering in a broken world Now we have this peculiar addition here at the end in verse 12. It begins with the, but above all, which means it's very important, but it's hard to determine why it's so important. Jesus, and James warns his readers not to give oaths or to to swear in heaven above or earth below. And this is very reminiscent of Jesus talking about oaths in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But why would it be added here? I think it's added here because uh, oaths are not going to help us in our patience or in our endurance or in our steadfastness. Oaths can only hurt us. I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching to the disciples that he would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and he'd be killed, and three days later, he'd be raised from the dead. And when he was handed over, strike the shepherd, all the sheep will scatter, all the disciples will scatter. And Peter says, no. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus told him that very night before the rooster crows, uh, you will deny me three times. This is instructive for us because we cannot be patient and steadfast just by a a profession or a proclamation of our hearts and just go, nope, I'm going to do it. We have no idea the stresses or strains that we'll be put under. That doesn't mean we will fail, but we cannot trust in ourselves in this. We cannot trust in our own commitment. No vow or oath is ever going to keep us faithful. Only the Lord God's commitment, his covenant with us, the keeping power of the Holy Spirit is what does that in you. Abide in him and allow his word to abide in you That is our hope. The abiding nature of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit is our hope. And I'm reminded of of after Job received word that he lost his children and all of his possessions. What did his wife do? She urged him to make an oath. Curse God and die. Be done with him. We're tempted by the world to admit that faith in God doesn't pay off. And so when things don't go our way, the world is just like, just give in. Just be hopeless with the rest of us and just try to live it up here. Just forget about all that stuff. But in that instant, remember the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God's promises are true. He is not slow in keeping his promises. You know the truth. Establish your heart on the truth and set your face heavenward. The Lord is coming. The judge is at the door. Patiently wait for him and remain steadfast in suffering for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would Give us strength to do your will. We pray that you would take away the desires we have to satisfy ourselves with the fleeting pleasures of sin. We pray that you would build in us resolve, that you would establish our hearts. to set our hopes on your return. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be mindful of others and that we would be mindful that you are at the door. The judge is at the door to help us to love and encourage and speak the truth in love and admonish and correct. And speak words of encouragement to one another as that day is fast approaching. Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. We long for your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.